0: Brothers and sisters, I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning. And we'll read together from the book of Romans, chapter 13, Romans 13, the first seven verses. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's far from Romans. I'd also invite you to take your book of praises. We're going to read a section from the Belgian Confession, Belgian Confession, Article 36. Article 36 of the Belgian Confession is entitled uh, Civil Government, where we understand what God's Word teaches about our responsibilities toward the civil government. Article 36 We believe that because of the depravity of mankind, our gracious God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and statutes in order that the lawlessness lawlessness of men be restrained and that everything be conducted among them in good order. For that purpose, he has placed a sword in the hand of the government to punish wrongdoers and to protect those who do what is good. Their task of restraining and sustaining is not limited to the public order, but includes the protection of the church and its ministry in order that the kingdom of Christ may come The word of the gospel may be preached everywhere, and God may be honored and served by everyone as he requires in his word. Moreover, everyone, no matter of what quality, condition, or rank, ought to be subject to the civil officers, pay taxes, hold them in honor and respect, and obey them in all things which do not disagree with the word of God. We ought to pray for them, that God may direct them in all their ways, and that we may live we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. For that reason, we condemn the Anabaptists and other rebellious people, and in general all those who reject the authorities and civil officers, subvert justice, introduce a communion of goods, and overturn the decency that God has established among men. Thus for our confession. The text for the sermon this morning comes from the letter of First Timothy, chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, the text is verse 1 through 4. I'm going to read verse 1 to 7, but we'll focus on the first four verses. <clears throat> first Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This far, our reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you've heard the slogan that we're to think globally, but act locally. <clears throat> we're to think globally, but act locally. And what that slogan is, is trying to capture is that we, the way we live our life, we must also be aware of, of what's going on around us in the big, wide world, that what happens in the world impacts our life. That's true for, for the environment, for business, the economy, politics. Just to give one example, if you think of what's going on in Ukraine now, the, the terrible war in Ukraine, how that affects also us living here so far away through, through things like fuel, fuel prices and, and food prices. The, the world is a, an interconnected place and our actions affect other people and their actions affect us. And so we need to think globally. Now, somebody may say, well, I can appreciate that that's valuable for people in positions of government or those in leadership positions in multinational corporations, but for a little old me, um, yeah, it's, it's not something that interests me. It's not something that I particularly care about. You know, I'm more worried about uh, the everyday things of life. Our, our lives are busy enough. You know, you have... You have children You're worried about getting kids to school on time, packing lunches and making sure everybody's done their homework. You're worried about your, your work and paying the bills, cutting the grass, getting the, the garbage out to the curb on the right day. I mean, there's so many details that fill our lives. Do I really need to care and think about these things? about the the big wide world, about politics and and government. In writing to Timothy in the, the city of Ephesus, the apostle teaches that indeed Christians ought to care about government because Christians ought to pray for government. He mentions, we pray for all people, specifically for kings and those in high positions. And so this morning I bring to you God's word with this theme, Christians are urged to pray for all people. Christians are urged to pray for all people. We're going to say who you pray for and why you pray for them. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who's a young minister in the city of Ephesus. And when he begins the letter, the apostle tells reminds him that he had left Timothy in Ephesus for the express purpose of dealing with some false doctrine, that was taking place. Some people were teaching false doctrine in the church of Ephesus. They were devoted to myths, and this had some some real-world consequences on the way in which they lived their lives. And so as you read through the letter, you get a bit of a picture of of what was going on because of this false doctrine. You know, what we believe has consequences, of course, for how we live. And so in chapter 6, we read about greed and, and covetousness. So that was a problem that needed to be addressed. And so the apostle writes in the third chapter of this letter, verse 14, that he's writing to Timothy so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So the instructions that that Paul is giving to Timothy is teaching Timothy so he can teach the people how he should be behaving. And he says, first, the first thing I'm, I'm urging you to do Is to pray. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, all people. Oh, so if you're a believer, prayer is an important part of your life. Prayer is is a daily thing. Our Lord Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, and so you may pray when you get up in the morning, or you may pray before each meal. You may pray before you retire to bed in the evening. Prayer is how you're, you're speaking to God and bringing your needs, your thanksgivings, and concerns to Him. Pray without ceasing. It's, it's a regular, everyday part of our lives. And yet, we don't want it to be just a routine either, We read in James chapter 5, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And so believers need to remember that that when we're praying, that does something, that 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 is powerful and effective. The Lord, in his sovereign providence, has ordained that he's governing the world in response to the prayers of his children. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful, it has effects. ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. And so it's vitally important that the church in Ephesus and Timothy pray. The apostle, as it were, piles up words to describe prayer. He says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. A supplication is something that one might ask in need. We, we need bread, we need food, we need work. We, we supplicate, we ask God for these things. Intercession, maybe praying on behalf of someone else. Thanksgiving, we, we bring our thanksgivings, the things that we're grateful for, to the Lord and praise Him for His generosity and His kindness to us. And so the Apostle says, you must pray for all these things, for all people. In the Old Testament, God had made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. So out of all the people of the world, God had chosen them to be his special covenant people. They were, as it were, the the channels of God's blessing to the world. God had said to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But with the coming of our Lord Jesus and, and the day of Pentecost, the gospel has now gone out to all people, all nations, And so the church of Ephesus was made up of Jews and Gentiles, people from, well, any different nation of the world. And so the apostle teaches Timothy and the church there that they must pray for all people. And how important that is, isn't it? Because we, as Christians too, we can become so easily wrapped up in our own lives. We're busy with our own daily work, with our own friends, family, or relationships, we're busy in, in Christ's church here with many things. And so that naturally gets reflected in, in what we pray about, what we're thinking about, what we care about. And so we're asking for God's blessing for our family life, for, for your parenting. You're asking for God's blessing for a, a brother or sister who is, who's struggling with illness. You're, you're praying for strength for your daily work, for our older brothers and sisters, for encouragement, for those who are struggling. And so it's good and well that we pray for all these things. But the Apostle says, I urge that you pray for all people. And so he, he urges them to lift up their heads and, and to look at the, the bigger, wide world out there. The world is, is bigger than me and my concerns and the things that I'm, I'm busy with this week. And so we, we look also around us in, in the pew at the people sitting around us and we think about their needs. People come into church with with different needs, different concerns on their hearts. One person perhaps came to church this morning and they're they're thinking about their children. They have, have deep concerns for their children. Another person has had a has had a difficult week. And they they just are feeling like failures. Like, like nothing's going well. Someone else is, is full of thankfulness for God's abundant generosity and kindness. Every day another person misses their husband or their wife who's passed away. They, they feel that loss and that ache each day. And so people come to church and they're, they're listening to the sermon and it's, it's being filtered through what's on their heart. What are they they listening for? What are their needs? What are their concerns? And that's not the same for each one of us, of course. And so, insofar as you understand those needs, you bring that before the Lord in your prayers. You pray for, for all people, for their needs as well. And the Apostle broadens that circle even further. You pray for all people, and he mentions in particular for kings and all those in authority. Now, you can imagine that perhaps when this was read to the Ephesians Christians, this might have been somewhat surprising to them. When the apostle says, I want you, you need to pray for kings. Because we need to understand that, that the government at that time was most certainly not Christian. Right? The the leadership in the Greco-Roman world, was not at all Christian. In fact, they were at times quite hostile to the Christian faith. It's thought that Emperor Nero was the emperor in Rome at that time. Emperor Nero is quite well known through history as being an incredibly cruel, wicked man. He was the one who would throw Christians to wild animals. He would would use them as as torches for his garden parties, Unmistakably awful things that this man would do. And then the apostle says, I'm urging you, first of all, you pray for all people and for, for kings, for, for Nero. And you're to do that with, with intercessions, you're to do that with prayers, you're to do that with, with thanksgiving. That you need to bring thanksgivings to the Lord for the king. Now that, you think, would be a, a challenging thing to do. But that reflects the the truth that the Apostle wrote to the Romans, that the government has a a God-given role to play in your life. We read in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so kings have an important role given by God, and so Christians must pray for them as they execute that role. So we can give thanks to the Lord for what is good in our government. Give thanks that the government punishes wrongdoers. Give thanks for law enforcement, for police, that we can go about our work without fear. We can pray for wisdom for our leaders, that they would do what is right, that they would have the courage to not do what is first popular, but what is what is right. We would also pray for repentance for all that is displeasing to the Lord and for the injustice that is perpetrated in our country today. Now, when the apostle writes to Timothy, this was, you understand, in a time before the internet, in a time before television, before radio, before probably newspapers. And so, we're not thinking here that that Timothy is to be a an expert in all the the goings-on and the political intrigue in the city of Rome. So it doesn't mean that Christians are to be political experts, all of them. But Christians are to care, so they would pray. In the Church of Ephesus, when you read through the letter, you see that some were, were preoccupied with different things. In chapter 1, the apostle speaks to Timothy about this false teaching, or writes to Timothy about this false teaching that was going on in Ephesus. He describes how some of the Christians there were uh, devoted to myths and endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies. So this was stuff that they're they making up. These, these stories, these doctrines, it, it was from their own imagination. And... What was wrong with that? What was the result of that was that this was not promoting love, and it was not promoting God's work. This false doctrine did not lead to a life of godliness and of service to others. And so the apostle warns Timothy to, to stay away from that, to, to stop that. And through this instruction, you see he's he's reorientating. The church to to what is important. They're not to be devoted to to these myths and this speculation and these discussions. No, instead they were to pray. And they are to pray for all persons. They are to understand that they are to care about what is truly important. Also to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, you can you can see how so easily in our lives we can become focused on ourselves, our own concerns. Our own issues it 's natural for us to, to focus on ourselves to look after number one, but the apostle says don't be your urge to pray for all people now brothers and sisters, is, is that something that's happening here in your lives? Is that living in your homes in your in your family life perhaps around the dinner table do you pray for your brothers and sisters in this church here in Mundajong. insofar as you understand their needs and what's going on in their lives, are you praying for them, for all people? It's urgent. He says, it's it's first. First of all, I, I urge you. And beyond that, are you also praying for this world in which you live, for our government, for the needs of our Prime Minister, Mr. Albanese, for the governments of this world, for non-Christians, for those who do not yet know the Lord and do not yet serve him. Prayer Prayer is powerful and effective. The Lord rules in response to the prayers of his people in his sovereignty. And so we need to bring these needs before his throne of grace. And that brings me to the second point, why We pray for this. First reason we pray for the government, the Apostle says, is so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness or godly and dignified in every way. So lives where we're free to serve the Lord without abuse and harassment, quietly in all dignity. Now, when you, you hear the words peace and quiet, maybe that might think you think of uh, leading a fairly sheltered existence, you know, where I just potter around in my garden in the in the sunshine, and there's nothing that disturbs my idyllic repose and existence. It's clearly not the sort of life the Apostle Paul himself lived. Right? The Apostle Paul lived a life where he, he went out and proclaimed the gospel. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. But he he tells God's people to pray that they would lead quiet, peaceful lives. And the sense of that is that we're, we're able to do what the Lord calls each one of us to do without hindrance. Part of the government's responsibility is to give laws and to maintain order and stability in the country, to punish wrongdoers so that those who do right can go about that safely. So you can go to work, that you can raise your family, that you can go to school, that you can have a home and do those things without fear and harassment. And the government has a significant role to play in that. And the apostle himself had experienced that actually in the city of Ephesus. And we can read about that in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we read about a a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith in the city of Ephesus. Now, Demetrius, he was one who made idols, and when he saw and heard Paul's preaching, he realized rightly that if if Paul's preaching was to be successful, this would clearly mean bad news for his business. And so he gathers together his colleagues, and they manage manage to to whip up a, a bit of an uproar in the city. And the whole city rushes into the theater, shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, given a chance, they likely would have lynched Paul. But they they shout like this for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But finally, it it is actually a city official, a government official, who is able to quiet down the mob. He says, look, if you have a legitimate complaint, the courts are open, that's the lawful way to deal with this. Now, you need to, you need to disperse, and I'll go home. And so the, the government official was the one who was able to restrain and, and maintain law and order. What was the outcome of that was that Paul could then carry on and, and go about his business. So that is the legitimate role that the Lord has given to governments in this world. Even a, a government where all the members of the government may be Christians, their job is not to spread the gospel, but rather to protect the church so the church can do its work of preaching and proclaiming that gospel. And so that brings us to the, to the second reason the apostle gives for why we're to pray for government. He says, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified, that is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, the logic of the Apostle's argument is this. When there is peace and stability in a country, Christians can live their lives in a, in a godly and dignified way, and that is good also for the spread of the gospel in the world. When, when Christians live in a, a dignified way, now what does it mean to live in a, a dignified way? I mean, you're never allowed to crack jokes, and you're always a, you know be serious. Now, the, the word dignified has a sense of, of reverence. So it means we're, we're living lives reverently before the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord obediently. And as, as Christians are, are living in that way, well, others can see what that's like. The Lord says, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And there is more. When a government maintains law and order, then the church is able to gather for worship freely and also send missionaries freely. And that was a situation in the Roman world. Even though the government at times was itself hostile to the Christian faith, the Roman government maintained law and order. And that meant that the Apostle Paul was able to travel around and preach the gospel in in many places around the world. And so, in a very short period of time, the the good news spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And the, the stability of the world at that time enhanced and promoted the spread of the gospel. The Apostle says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Some people have struggled with that that phrase there. God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Does this mean God desires each and every individual to be saved? When you combine that with what comes next in verse 6, where it says, he gave himself who gave himself as a ransom for all. Is this text teaching the doctrine of universalism? The idea that each and every person, regardless of whether they have faith in Christ, will in the end be saved. Well, clearly that's not the case. Our Lord has said, for the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you were to look up just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, you'd find the apostles say that he he has handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So clearly, not all will be saved. Not all people will be saved. Only those who repent from their sins and put their faith in Christ. What this text is teaching is that as the gospel is preached everywhere, It comes with a call to repent and believe. God's desire is that people respond and are saved. The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. And that gospel is proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples, to all men. When the text says that God desires all people to be saved, that doesn't mean each and every individual it also means all kinds of people. In the Old Testament, God had placed his his covenant, He made his covenant with the people of Israel, the children of Abraham. But after Pentecost, the Lord told his disciples, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the the Christian Ephesus who were who were devoted to myths and endless genealogies. They're focused on these these Jewish genealogies. They're way off the mark. No, the apostle had been sent to the Gentiles. God desires all people to be saved, people of different race, gender, ethnicity, economic status. The invitation of the gospel goes to all people to believe and repent. And so God used apostles like Paul to announce this message. They were the heralds of this message. So the apostle says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So that is how the gospel spread around the world to all people. And the apostles became the foundation of the Christian church. But after the apostles died, The Lord used the next generation, people like Timothy, to proclaim this message. The apostle even tells Timothy to entrust this message to other people so that they in turn could could teach others this message. And so the Lord has continued to, to gather his church in this way. The Christian church has preachers and sends missionaries all over the world. We also this morning supported the work in Indonesia, Because all people must hear, repent, and believe. And yet, this is not just a task of missionaries. For the apostle writes that they're to pray that they may live godly and dignified lives in every way. And there's a a connection made between this, this dignified life of the Christians in Ephesus and also others coming to know the truth and being saved. And so as Christians lead their lives, the peaceful, godly lives, dignified, others can see and hear and know. And so the apostle writes in 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Lord desires all, people to be saved? Is that a a desire that we share? All kinds of people. People who are Muslims and Hindus, drug addicts, people living on the streets, also politicians, lawyers, doctors, accountants, carpenters, mechanics, people in prison, the people living over the fence. God desires all people to be saved. For them, too, the, the command comes, repent and believe. And do you, do you share that desire as well, brothers and sisters? In Ephesus, the apostle writes about another desire that the people had later in his letter. In chapter 6, he writes about, about something that was, that was very important to them that they desired. We read, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So that was an issue, that they desired to be rich. That was a priority for them. And brothers and sisters, isn't that desire of our world as well? Isn't that the desire that you are categorized to believe and accept in our society too? We desire to have bigger houses, to have nicer cars. We desire to have better holidays, to have nicer clothes. You are taught, you are encouraged to desire to be Rich. And as the Apostle says, that causes all sorts of problems in many people's lives. It's the root of a, a lot of misery, this desire to be rich. And if that's, if that's the way I'm living my life, that's not the, the godly, dignified life that we're praying for. That's not, that's not a salty, different life. That's, that's ordinary. That's what everybody does the desire for more and more. If that's my desire, practically speaking, it's going to be hard for me also to, to give of my gifts for the work of mission. If, if my desire is, is more for me, to be truly generous will be hard. Will I have time Will I have time to get involved in supporting the work of mission if my desire is to be rich? And so, brothers and sisters, what is your focus? What is your desire? What things are important to you? God desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. The apostle says in verse 3 that, This pleases God, our Savior. It's just a small word in our text, the word our. But it's enough to remind us of something very important, that God is our Savior. That you and I also needed to be saved. We need to be saved from our sins, from eternal destruction that left to yourself, that's that's where you're going. By nature, we're heading to eternal destruction. The apostle writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2. He says, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, brothers and sisters, you need a Savior. Our our desires, our passions, actually lead us to death. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. So you've not been saved because you're so good. No, we, we've done nothing at all. That's the only way for you to be saved. You needed God to save you. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. If someone does not believe in Jesus Christ, they cannot be saved. But the Lord has sent his son In order to save you, our Lord Jesus did not look out for his own interests, but rather the interests of others. He left the the glory of heaven and was made man. He became poor, made himself nothing, took the form of a servant. He suffered throughout all his life, and that then came to the climax on the cross, where he willingly gave up his life to save his people. Knowing that grace of God, that also impels us then to care for others, to pray for all people. And so you you look around at the people around you, you you see what's going on in their life, and you you bring those things before the Lord in prayer. God has set a government over you. We can worship this morning unhindered. What What an amazing blessing. Pray for your government. Pray for repentance for the injustices in our land. Pray for wisdom that they would be able to address the the serious issues that face our country. Pray that we can continue to live in peace and freedom, quiet and dignified lives. The Lord uses His church as a city on a hill, as a light. In this world, others come to know about Him through His people. He gives you opportunities to speak about your faith. Do you you pray about that? Do you pray that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? The work of mission, is that that part of your regular prayer life? What, What would happen if each week or several times a week in your family you prayed for the work of mission? God works change on the basis of our prayers. In his sovereignty, God is governing the world in response to the prayers of his people. But isn't it true that also one of the changes that needs to happen is the change in our own hearts, so that we begin to understand and care and desire the things that our Lord cares for, that our desires get in line with our Father in heavens. In Australia, we've been blessed with peace and stability for decades now. We have peace and quiet. And that's not just so that you and I can lead comfortable, easy lives. Not just so that we can enjoy Him, but for the furtherance of His kingdom in this world. And so we have a time of opportunity, and let's not waste it. Amen.